This is FlipPod, the podcast for the Brooklyn Law Incubator and Policy Clinic. I'm this episode's host, Amanda Kadish. FlipPod is a podcast created and produced by students of Blip, a startup clinic at Brooklyn Law School. I'm joined by Blip's co-professor, Linda Braun. We discuss Professor Braun's unique path into the legal field, her work as an intellectual property litigator, her focus on trademark work, her experience leaving a 25-year career as a litigator at a large firm to teach law school students. And finally, we explore SCOTUS's move to take on a number of intellectual property cases these last few years. Good afternoon, Professor Ron. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. How are good, you? Good, good. I'm good. I'm given everything that's going on in the world, I'm I'm doing all right. I thought there are so many reasons why you're the perfect person to interview for a law school podcast. Um, but I think the thing that makes your story so different is that you have such a unique path towards the law. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of law school students or people who want to go to law school um, don't necessarily understand that there are unconventional and non-traditional paths towards law school. Um, so I'd love to ask you and start there about your the beginning of your career, which uh, you started as a Spanish teacher. That's correct. Uh, when I graduated college, uh, well, let me back up. In, uh, I've always loved Spanish. And so I took Spanish starting in the fifth grade and throughout my entire um, school years. And in college, I decided to major in Spanish literature. I loved Spanish literature and I got a uh, sense of it in high school. And I took the AP course. And so in college, I majored in Spanish literature. And the my college years were were pretty turbulent because like now where there's a social movement for racial injustice, there I was involved in a social movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And we were protesting the Vietnam War, we mm. uh, had pro, uh, demonstrations, we were attacked by police with tear gas. It was very familiar to me uh, as to what's going on today. Uh, then we also had, of course, the the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 68. Robert Kennedy was assassinated in June. He was running for president. Uh, mm -hmm. they, um, he was a candidate. And um, so we didn't really, a lot of us, meaning when I say we, I mean a lot of my colleagues in in college and myself didn't really think that much about a career. We were really much more concerned with changing the world and making big changes mm. in the world. So when I finished college, you know, what could I do with a degree in Spanish literature? So I decided to take the New York City teaching exam for Spanish in high school. And do you mind if I interrupt you? I just want, I'm curious, what, um, if you don't mind me asking, what years 
when did you start in college? What year was I it? I started in 1967, the fall of 1967. Oh my gosh. And uh, I finished a semester early. So I finished in January of 1970. And that's when I got my first job was that, that those next few months. Um, I got, did mm -hmm. take the Spanish teaching exam. I got a call from the Bronx High School of Science and they said that they had a position for a high school Spanish teacher. Would I be interested? It was a temporary position because one of the teachers was going out on maternity leave. And I said, yes. <laughs> so the rest <laughs> is sort of history. But so I taught there for many years. There were a lot of ins and outs. Like I got laid off one year. I got put back one year. There were, there were budget cuts and so forth. But Basically, I taught there for a number of years, and um, I never, I always loved the students. I loved teaching the students. I loved working with the young people. They were almost my age. I was just turned 21 when I started teaching. So, oh my gosh. So a lot of the students were you know, like only a few years younger than me. And so I felt more akin students than I did to some of the the uh, the teachers, faculty. Yeah. So um, was there kind of like a feeling from the students, like, what do you know? Or was there a more a trust? You I felt like they, they really liked having me as the teacher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were very respectful. And I felt like I, I was very transparent about who I was and what I believed and my mm. politics, that I wanted her to change the world, about everything I did in college. And um, so it was really, it was a very good, good match. And then what took you from a career as a teacher to the law? And and again, I, I know, but I think a lot of our listeners would benefit from knowing you were a Spanish teacher for a very long time. Yeah, I was a Spanish teacher for 17 years from 1971 the fall, the uh, spring of 71 uh, until um, June of 1988. And I started law school in August of 1988. What I, I always felt like I, even though I loved the students, the actual teaching became a little uh, redundant to me. You know, I was teaching, let's say, first year Spanish, second year Spanish, third year Spanish, at five classes a day. And it was repeating the same, the same lesson three times a day and then two times a day. And then I started getting involved in other things in, in, in the high school and trying to, uh, I became involved in high school reform and started doing teaching that was more student-centered rather than teacher-centered. And I did that for a number of for a number of years and really enjoyed that. But then it, everything fell flat. So I, I kept on saying, I really wanted to, I never really wanted to be a teacher. I went into teaching because of, there was nothing else to do with my degree. So I do, and I was always very interested in the law. And that came out of my political and activism years. And so finally I said, you know, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I yeah. had two young kids 
and a husband. And my husband was very supportive and said he would help me if I wanted to go back to school. So I took the LSATs in 1988 when I was still teaching and then got into school and I uh, got into law school and chose to go to Cardozo. And then um, I started in August of 1988 and I went full time and took that mm. from my teaching job. Did you tell any of your colleagues uh, at your school that you were studying for the LSAT or did you keep that under wraps? I think I kept that under wraps. I don't know if I shared that or not. I can't really remember, but I definitely told them when I was going to law school and everybody was jealous. Yeah. Like if you didn't have, what would, what would have been different if your husband, Bob, hadn't been so supportive. I mean, going to law school is hard. Going to law school later in life is hard. Going to law school with two young kids, I can't even imagine what that's like. You know, I don't know because he's always been so supportive. He's, he's really a <laughs> feminist at heart. So I can't really say what I would have done. But um, I do know myself that I, I have a drive in me. And that's what got me through. Mm. Everybody always said, you know, how can you go back to school after all these years? You haven't been in school for 17, 18 years. I said, I'm just going to do it. I know I can do it. When you entered law school, um, what were your career goals at that time? You know, I didn't really have any. That's the funny thing. <laughs> I, I didn't have career goals. I had school goals, which was to do, to study as, hard as I could and be as good as I could be because at that time um, everybody I went to school with pretty much was a lot younger than I was and so they euphemistically called us the returning students rather than the older students. <laughs> I just uh, so I didn't really I guess I always thought that I would go into nonprofit work and I did that the mm -hmm. summer uh, after my first year. I got a, uh, a like a, uh, what is it called? A fellowship or some kind of uh, social justice, something um, that gave me some money so I could work. I worked for MFY Legal Services down in Chinatown. And mm. what all different do? kinds of, uh, non of uh, poverty law. We uh, were at, they do benefits and they do uh, disability work, you know, all that kind of work. And I was placed to do some litigation, which is what I was interested in. I wanted to see what it was like to do that. Mm -hmm. And so when you entered law school, did you have a sense you wanted I to be a litigator? Because that, that's really the only thing you know. You know, you, before mm -hmm. you go to law school, you think, oh, that's what law, law lawyering is. It's like, you know, being a lawyer on LA Law or being a lawyer on Perry Mason or being, you know. Yeah. You always <laughs> see people like law and order. You see them in the court. You don't see people who are doing transactional work, other kinds of work in the law, um, which of course doesn't lend itself as well to nonprofit law think that maybe this could potentially be my path 
in the law or did you kind of always know at that point in time that this was just uh, going to be a, a summer? Uh, I didn't know for sure. I felt very comfortable there because, you know, coming from a teaching profession, which is not corporate at all, you don't, you're not in an office. It's a whole different, uh, you know, venue and, and place when you're in a big corporate law firm, it's just a whole different place. And, and I felt that felt more foreign. So I wasn't sure what I was ultimately going to do, but I just kept on plugging away. <laughs> and then of course that summer for those listening who haven't gone through OCI, which is on campus yes. interviews. Yeah. Interviews. Um, that happens between your first year and your second year. So you actually were interviewing for uh, jobs at large law firms while you were working at the- Well, it was a little, a little bit later than that. It was at our OCI, our on-campus interviews were like in September and I was, we had already started mm -hmm. classes. So it was really the very, very beginning of the second year of law school. I know it's- Okay. Yeah. So they've changed. Right. That I know that. Um, I know that now. But then I was just interviewing mostly in September, uh, maybe the very end of August, and you're putting your your resumes in to try to get interviews. You were a very good student. Um, did did like your recruiting center encourage you to apply for the large law firms? How did you decide that was a path I you wanted just, to go down? Um, you know, I, I hadn't been working all of all year um, because I was going to law school full time. I had a family at home uh, that depended on my salary. We, we were two, two, two salary family. And I felt like, oh, when I heard the kinds of salaries that you get at a law firm, I would yeah. say, well, I, I guess they're they're. Um, they're giving me interviews. They, you know, I got a, a lot of interviews from big law firms, I guess, because I was on law review and I was in the top 10% of my class with my grades. And so I, I was thinking, should I do it? Should I not do it? I didn't really go to, re to uh, the recruitment center, not the recruitment, the, um, um, you know, the, the school uh, counseling or career center. I basically just decided, let me try to interview. Let me see what happens. And then I can always do something else after, because the nonprofits really didn't come to the to OCI too much. I think Legal Aid did and maybe a few other places. But um, I just ended up thinking, well, this would be good. I could make some money. I could, you know, contribute to the family because I'm going to be two more years without uh, a salary. Ultimately, you chose Wild Gottschall. Um, I did. To start your career. At. Um, yeah, I felt I interviewed at a number of big law firms. And what was funny was that the person who interviewed me was a partner in the real estate department. And then at that time in the real estate department was one of my former students from Bronx Science. She heard that, that I was interviewing. She told him, you know, oh my God, that's my Spanish teacher. <laughs> and so he really <laughs> wanted me. And he kept on like, they kept on calling me and he said, tell your 
teacher to come. Tell your teacher to come. <laughs> that is amazing. So, so ultimately, your Spanish career, unbeknownst to you, would right. pay off in a very big yeah. way. It was funny. <laughs> and, you know, it's always nice to go to a place that wants you. Right. I mean, rather than you trying to get in and then you can't and then you're on a waiting list or something and you're not really, you know, their first choice. But here they really were pulling to have me accept the offer. And so I ended up, of course, accepting. That's how it how it happened. And do you think that they liked that you had had a career prior to joining the, the legal field, or do you think they were just excited about the coincidence that uh, with the I real estate? I think that um, there, at that time, there weren't a lot of quote-unquote returning students, but there was somebody mm -hmm. in the class before mine who also, from Cardozo, who ended up going as a summer associate to Wildachal, and she was even older than I was, and had a Another also had a career, not in teaching and something else. I don't remember what, but they, um, she did very well at the law firm. And so they were saying, you know, this, we know that this, that a, a person who has had another career and is mature and so forth would do very well. And that was based on the experience that they had mm -hmm. had. Of course, this is a, a podcast that focuses on technology, the intersection between technology and law. And, uh, you know, you spent your career uh, within intellectual property uh, law. Well, let me correct that because I didn't, <laughs> I Please did do. spend <laughs> the majority of my career as an uh, intellectual property litigator, soft IP, we call soft IP copyright trademark, um, trade secrets, right of publicity, internet law, everything not patents. So that the patents are a, a whole different field and much more um, based on some for somebody who has been, let's say, in engineering as their undergraduate career. Uh, but um, I, the beginning, when I first went to Wild Gotchel as a first year associate, they just wanted you to choose the department and litigation was general litigation. So it included everything, including securities law, including you know, any kind of litigation in any field, not just intellectual property, commercial litigation. So mm -hmm. they wanted us to get experience in anything and everything. I think things have changed since then and people are you know, now, uh, out of law school starting to specialize right away, but then we were encouraged, they, they wouldn't let us, let's put it that way. In my, so in the beginning, right. we did a, I did a lot of just basic litigation and commercial litigation. And then in my third year, a case came along that um, I was asked to run with, an, with a partner, which had to do with the movie Philadelphia. It was a, um, a theft of idea case. All intellectuality, that was my first um, smattering of, you know, a taste of intellectual property law. And it was 
it, we represented TriStar Pictures, Sony Pictures, Jonathan Demme, who directed Philadelphia, Tom Hanks was, and Denzel Washington with the stars, Ron Nyswanner was the, the, uh, the screenwriter, and Ed, um, Ed, oh my goodness, I can't believe I can't give his last name, but he, he's a well-known producer, and he, so we represented everybody, and it was just the, the most wonderful experience, because I was so junior, and yet I was running the space, and ultimately, we had to, because it became, um, you know, a big case, and we needed more, uh, more people, more bodies, then uh, we were putting junior, more junior associates on the case. So I ran this huge team. And uh, I think, you know, therein was my maturity. You know, that I, that that's why they mm. let me do that. And they thought I could do that. And I could do it. And I felt very comfortable doing it about the case and the background between like well what, they were being were sued being by sued? the estate of a family of a lawyer who um was uh fired because he had aids it was during the the the, mm -hmm. the, the really middle or beginning of the aids crisis in the country and um he his story was out in the public domain. There were articles about it. It was really a horrible, very sad story that he eventually died of, of AIDS and so forth. But and I felt bad um, that the family really thought that we stole his story. That was a theft, the idea. But mm -hmm. we, Ron Icewater and Jennifer, Jonathan Demi. Both had friends, and Ron in particular had a nephew who had AIDS and died of AIDS. And a lot of people in Hollywood were contracting AIDS. And so they used a lot of their own personal experiences in the movie. And Ron wrote the screenplay. And a lot uh, that was, he based a lot of it on his nephew and what happened to his nephew, although the the plot of the movie of Philadelphia, if you've seen it, and those of you, you know, who haven't should see it, because it's a it's really a marvelous movie, um, that he that it was about a lawyer. Tom Hanks played the lawyer who got AIDS and ultimately was let go from his job and then sued the law firm. Mm -hmm. So uh, there were a lot of similarities, but but it was it was based yeah. on um, other people's experiences and also based on what was in the newspaper, which is, you know, you, everybody can read it and get it. And, mm -hmm. and Philadelphia was, when was that produced? Like it in was the in, part of um, the AIDS crisis? 80 or 90, 91, maybe 90. I, Something like that. Yeah, it was in the heart of the AIDS crisis mm -hmm. for sure. It was a. It took about three years. You know, it's cases take a long time in litigation. And we, I was working on it with mm -hmm. other. You know, I had other matters that I was on 
when I first got the case, but later on, as we had a bigger team and there was more, a lot more work to do, uh, little by little, I was doing that, that case full time. And we ultimately, um, you know, we had expert witnesses. We had a lot of experts um, that we hired and um, to help us, you know, tell the, tell some of the story that, you know, and support our position. And ultimately we went to trial. And the interest, this is interesting, I think for students that the trial was before Judge Sotomayor who was a, a federal, she was oh in the gosh. Southern District of New York, federal judge at that time. Ultimate, you know, after that, subsequently she became, she went to the Second Circuit. And then of course, everyone knows to the Supreme Court. At that time, she was, uh, she was tough. It was a tough cookie. But, and we, and we, uh, yeah. we you know, um, we chose a jury we had a jury uh, consultant who helped us in advance, and we did a lot of focus groups on trying to determine what kind of uh, jury we would want, what kind of person. Uh, what uh, kind of jury were you looking well, for? We were looking for people who had heart, but who also, um, we were hoping to find people who didn't know the story and could actually see, you know, mm -hmm. what what came out of uh, what the plaintiffs were saying and what came out of what we were saying. Um, and I had a number of, that was going to be my first trial. I was second chairing the trial with uh, a partner and um, we uh, ultimately settled. And I was very bummed. <laughs> I was glad for the client Although the client, you know, it's a, it's a uh, confidential settlement, so I can't say what it was. But, um, you know, when you settle, you generally pay something. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. you know, it was just, it was disappointing because I was going to really do a real trial, of, you know, trial. And um, oh. I had expert witnesses. I had prepared some of the uh, other witnesses, you know, the fact witnesses. It was a great experience, though, I have to say. My next question was going to be, how long did the trial yeah, it was last? Well, I, it did. It, we we had opening statements. We had picking the jury. We had a couple of motions in limine. Um, and then we had the opening statements, you know, and I think after the opening statements is when, you know, they actually, she was encouraging us, Sotomayor was encouraging the party to try to settle. And, and come back. Hmm. Did she think it would, they, the trial would take? I think she just thought that or? it could be settled rather than going through such a costly trial because there were so many expert witnesses. Those yeah. are paid a lot. We had a lot of fact witnesses who had to come in from California. We had a lot of damage witnesses, you know, and so it was a lot, it was very complex, mm -hmm. it, you know, but it got me personally. Yeah. I think at that point I was in my fifth year, a little bit before my fifth year, and I was able to have really experienced a trial from soup to almost soup to enough to 
to really understand and get the experience. Yeah. So where did your well did after your that go from there? Uh, because I had done a intellect an intellectual property case. It's funny, at least, I don't know if this is true in other places too, but all of a sudden I became the intellectual property associate. So I, so the next time an intellectual property case came in, which I think was a copyright case for Disney uh, over the, um, it was uh, a cartoon series called Gargoyles. And so I was put on that. And then we went to, we, it wasn't a trial, but we mm -hmm. did go to the Second Circuit. We first, you know, the, the other side uh, appealed. We went through a full um, a bench trial and a summary judgment motion ultimately. And after that, another case came in that was also a theft of idea case. And that was Barbara Walters. Um, and ABC came to mm. us about her show, The View. She had just started The View a few, like a year before. And somebody sued her saying that they stole her idea. And so we, um, we were defending ABC and Barbara Walters. So I did that. Then there was a case involving Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? That was a popular show then. And I got that. <laughs> and then there was a show, uh, a, um, a case of American Eagle Outfitters, which is not TV or, or movies, but it was an intellectual property case about trade dress and trademark infringement. And we were sued by uh, uh, Abercrombie. And so I did that and that was in Michigan. Mm -hmm. and, and so we ultimately had, um, we didn't have a trial in that case, but we did have a summary, a very long discovery period and summary judgment. And then uh, they, the other, we won, the other side appealed. And so we went to the Sixth Circuit and that was my, when I got admitted to the Sixth Circuit. And so I feel like just, I'm just thinking about my, my teenage years so abercrombie was suing essentially because the american eagle symbol was in a very similar uh like right it was like in the corner of the shirt in a similar fashion to the like moose that it, abercrombie it had. was Does, more about is that the whole it was it was a strange case it was about how their stores actually imitated abercrombie stores which i don't think is through. Um, I didn't think so at the time when I looked at both stores, but the, plate, the placement of the different wow. types of garments, then also not so much the the logos, but the the actual types of uh, sport, sportswear that they used. And they had a whole list of things that made they felt made up their trade dress. And so in order to refute a lot wow. of their um, arguments, what I did is I went shopping, shopping to find like <laughs> each fun. piece of, you know, each clothing item or each whatever that they said was so similar to what um, uh, American Eagle did. A, you know, 
I wanted to make the argument that it was just, it was so common that no, that we couldn't have infringed it. It's just a commonality among all kinds of sportswear stores. So I went to all different kinds of stores and I bought things that looked just like whatever they were talking about. And uh, we ultimately um, photographed them, some of the things, we, and that became part of our summary judgment function. So did After you that, yeah, I did some uh, trademark infringement work for a, a company called Puj, P-U-I-G, which was located in Spain. And they owned a lot of fragrance and clothing and apparel companies like Paco Rabanne and Nina, um, Nina, not Nina Ricci, um, um, oh my God, Carolina Herrera. And we, did, we had some, uh, some cases for them. Very friendly with the general counsel at Puj. He was actually living in Paris. And when my husband and I went on a trip there, he took us around and, you know, we had dinner with him and his wife and it was really nice. And he ended up giving me his uh, trademark portfolio for Puj, for Paco Rabanne, for um uh carolina herrera for all you know they had a, so many trademarks and so i took them on and that's when i taught myself how mm. to um defend you know do trademark prosecution which is what i teach at the law school now we can't really do litigation i didn't do a lot of it at the at while because um after a little bit of time, Wilde just decided that it wasn't lucrative enough in general to have to do trademark prosecution work. So um, they had they were scaling right. back on the portfolios that I had plus other people had had and that the paralegals were working on. So we ended up not doing that much. But when I uh, got the... Uh, the offer to teach at Brooklyn Law to do trademark work, really the most uh, uh, the most uh, realistic thing was to do trademark prosecution with students because that they could do. And a trademark litigation that could take years was just not feasible. Just backing up when you said that he gave you his trademark portfolio, can you explain? Yeah, it's a list um, and a, a chart what, of what all the trademarks that? that they owned. And so it might have been Carola, Carolina Herrera, Carolina Herrera 212, Paco Rabanne. They had a 212 fragrance. They had, you know, all different kinds of things like that. And when you hold the portfolio, that means that you you basically are policing, quote unquote, the trademark. You have to, un, under trademark law, you have to show that you've made an effort and an attempt to protect the trademark rights that you have um, and also maintenance mm -hmm. of the trademark. So if, if it was up for renewal, we had to do that. And he ended up giving us even more trade, new trademarks that they wanted to uh, register uh, at that time. So, you know, we got, we did new trademark 
filings. We did maintenance on old trade trademarks and also policing of the trademarks by seeing what trademarks were being registered at the USPTO, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and seeing if they infringed on our any of the trademarks that we were holding for the client. Overseas we had a watch process. service, uh, which at a big firm you can do, or even at a medium-sized firm, when you have a client who has a lot of very um, valuable trademarks, and they can become very, very valuable for a company. A watch service is when they send you the watch, the service itself, and now like Reuters, Thomson Reuters does it, there are other companies that do it, they send you the, um, uh, like, uh, the trademarks that are being registered every day. So you get a whole slew of them. Some of them have nothing to do or not even close to your trademark, to your client's trademarks, but some of them are close. And you look at those carefully to make sure that they don't infringe. If they did infringe, the next step would be to write a cease and desist letter to the person who is or individual or company who was trying to uh, register it. Or And then um, if they didn't, then you would ultimately have a lawsuit you would have an infringement lawsuit we did have Sorry, one on. lawsuit it was um against paco jeans a company called paco jeans and we felt that because paco raban also made clothing that people would assume that the fragrance and the clothing came from from paco raban rather than from Paco Jeans. We felt there would be confusion. And ultimately, we unfortunately, mm -hmm. we lost that case. We had a bench trial and the judge ruled in favor of Paco mm. Jeans, which I still think is a wrong decision. I still think, but that's what he did. And, um, yeah. and we had yeah. uh, trademark experts, uh, each one, the battle of the experts, try, you know, where you just determine what the public thinks and whether there is confusion. That kind of leads me to the work that you do now oh, okay. with the UD, UDRP. <laughs> UDRP, <laughs> I was doing that my pretty much my whole career uh, when I became a more senior lawyer because you have to be, have 15 years experience to become a panelist, what they call a panelist, it's like an arbitration. And the UDRP stands for Uniform Domain Name Dispute Resolution Policy. And what it is, is a, an expedited and inexpensive way to, uh, for a, pers a person or company who thinks their domain name has been stolen or been infringed upon to get it back. And so that started in 1999. It was put into effect um, then. And um, I became a panelist soon thereafter. And uh, it's just very interesting. You basically get, uh, everything is remote. So it's very easy to adapt to today's, <laughs> today's world. 
uh, you know, if you're a panelist under the yeah. EU, but you, um, you, you get appointed to be a panelist of a specific case. You get asked if you can take on that case. You have to do a conflict check if you're at any kind of law firm or even in a in the uh, law school, um, uh, you know, position, because you have to make sure that the the person who is going to be deciding the case um, is totally independent of the parties. And so once you get the case, then they send you the complaint and the answer and all of the supporting documentation, all the submissions, which are annexes, uh, they're, um, you know, all different kinds of information about the domain name and what they, how they are supporting the bill and uh, they're supporting their case. And then uh, I get two weeks, once I get all the materials, I read them, I have two weeks to respond and I basically write the decision. And it's, it's fairly formulaic after a while. Some of them are very, you know, they have thousands and thousands of those cases that come in. So a lot of them are very similar to one another. Um, and some of them are a little more challenging, but they, uh, I've been doing that now for a number of years and I still do that. Yeah. Did you feel like it enriched your, your skills as a litigator? I did. Yeah. I felt, uh, I definitely felt arguments? that way and I enjoy it. I still enjoy it very much. And um, I also at the law firm, now that I'm a professor, I bring that in to the clinic so that students, I teach them about it uh, so that even though they can't become an arbitrator until they have 15 years under their belt as a trademark lawyer or an intellectual property lawyer, they can certainly represent um, mm. clients who need, who want to get a domain name back. They can be the complainant or they can be the respondent. And so that's, that's a good transition because you took another professional leap. So after 25 years at Wildbatchel, um, you moved on over to Brooklyn. I, uh, I guess I was, at that point of my career, uh, unfortunately, I had a big loss in my family, and my my 26 year old son died. And I, yeah, it was very very hard. So I took a few years off uh, from Wagachal on a leave, and my husband also took a leave from his job for a couple of years because we were just in such grief, but. When I came back, I did go back to Wild Gotchel and I really felt completely changed. This event in my life just completely changed both of us. It also changed my daughter. We have a daughter as well. And she and we felt and I felt that I just had a completely different perspective on life at that point. And I just didn't want to. The, the big mm -hmm. law firm life just was not compatible with my new um, my new outlook, I guess you could say. Uh, and so I I was, yeah. you know, 
I was I took a leave from Wagacho, another leave after I went back and worked there for a few years after my son died. And then I got offered this job at Brooklyn Law. And I said to myself hmm. um, that this seemed like so good for me. Like this good, would be a good, good uh, transition yeah. back to the workplace. And I would be, it's like coming full circle. You know, I would be teaching again. I'd be mm -hmm. mentoring again, which I loved. And I did when I was at Wagacho. Mm -hmm. I always took young associates under my wing. And um, mainly because I never had anybody to do that for me. And I felt like mm -hmm. it's really important. Men tend to have that a lot more than women. I wouldn't say that no women do that these days. But at the time that I was coming up, I was one of the only women who were, you know, being promoted. So I, um, so I loved the idea of coming into Brooklyn Law and what was offered to me was to co-teach or take my intellectual property experience into the blip clinic. I didn't know what it was, what the, <laughs> but I, I ended up uh, speaking to Jonathan Askin, of course, and who is the director of the clinic and, and was the founder of the clinic. And uh, we got along really well. And we thought it would be a good addition. He, he really thought it would be a, a great contribution to uh, the, the students who really liked, you know, and a lot of them wanted to do intellectual property work. Once I got the offer, to, to okay. for the job. Yeah. I think it was January 16th, 2017. I wrote my resignation letter to Weil that same day. And what same thing with a similar question to when I was asking you about leaving your teaching career. Were people uh, surprised they that you were going from a it's law not that firm I hit to it. work it's at a It's just that I was very, I became, I was very social for most of the years there, but then I became very um, non-social, I guess, because a lot of my colleagues had left. You know, there's always a big turnover in big law firms. So a lot of my friends that I would call my friends had left, gone on to other places for their careers. And um, so I really didn't tell many people until recently when I uh, wrote a little blurb while, while Gotchel has like an alumni asso uh, association and a newsletter. And so they, you know, they were asking for people who are somewhere else now to write about it. And so I did. And so then people got to hear about the fact that I was teaching at the law school and they were they loved the idea. They thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I did. I hey, did. Colleagues and they thought that I would do that. a really good job because they knew that I loved mentoring students or mentoring young people. And that um, I also, you know, was a, was a fairly good, I, you know, I don't want to brag, but was a, a good litigator and, that I had a lot of information to share <laughs> after so many years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they were right. <laughs> you are, you're great at it. Um, as someone who has been Thank mentored you. by you, I, I can speak to that. Um, and I've 
Of course. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Are there challenges with students? Um, but most of the time, not. I would say that most students really um, welcome it. Welcome, like if I'm, if I say something like, "Oh, so do you have a job for next for the summer? What are you doing?" And then I look up where they're going. Oh, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do that. Or I had a student this semester who was did have a. Uh, She's a, mm -hmm. She was a 3L, so she graduated. She has a uh, job um, at a law firm. I guess it's a fairly big law firm. It's not one of the biggest, but, and she really took to trademark law so easily. She was, I was just impressed with her abilities. And I remember asking her, did mm. you take trademark prosecution somewhere before you know and she said no you're I learned it from you and I I was just very impressed so when I asked her about where she was going and what department she said she was going to go into possibly commercial litigation or I forget now but it, it didn't have anything to do with IP so I said you know I'd like to write to the um the partner there who is the uh, in charge of who, you know, of all the incoming first years and tell her that I think she, you should be in the IP department because you have what it takes and you don't really even need a lot mm. of um, training. You've done so many of these. So uh, she, I, of course, I would ask her first and she said yes. And I wrote to the the partner at the law firm and she wrote back to me and thanked me and was, uh, you know, very, she was very touched by the letter. How could you not be? And I think so much, so much of what the legal field is like, just kind of going off of a gut reaction and then also having somebody like be there to push sure. you to go in that sure. direction um, because it's scary to make those, those leaps. And finally, because you are, <laughs> you're a mentor to individuals, but you are known in our group, uh, the technology group, as being the professor who sends you an email uh. with a link to an interesting article at any time of the day. Um, we will get we will get emails from Professor Braun early in the morning, late at night, um, <laughs> and. You know, it's a great resource. And I think that's the other thing is what's so great about technology law is that it's it's changing before our eyes. Um, and I think you really do need to step outside of the boundaries of a textbook and look at, you know, the, the links that are going on and um, just stay stay attuned to it. So one of the things you've brought our attention to is oh. the fact that the Supreme Court has been taking on a lot more cases uh, related to intellectural property I, law. I, Do you mind I, talking to us about you, why I'm you sort of at a loss. I, I don't understand it, to tell you the truth, because they were only in the past, like one IP uh, case over a number of years. And now, like this year, I think there were five cases um, that they took. Some of them weren't as critical, you know, but they definitely mm -hmm. were on trademark copyright cases. I, I, I am at, I'm speechless, let's say, 
has an answer to that question, but I, I think it's fantastic because yeah. it keeps, um, you know, that's my field. And that's why I, I liked, I always did this when I was uh, an associate, I read everything I could. I skimmed things. You can't possibly read everything, but I went through every, um, newsletter or you know any of these the um uh the like law.com has alm.com and you have the american lawyer you have the uh law journal of course i would read the law journal every day new york law journal but um i would always skim all these other um these other newsletters to see what's going on and that's why I didn't know that I was known as that, but, but I, you know, I just tend to do that. Like I do that <laughs> for my students too. If I know they're interested in art law and then all of a sudden I see something on art law, I immediately, you know, um, cut and paste and send it, send them the link. Like you should be up, up to date on this. This is something you should know about. So um mm -hmm. So I, um, I, you know, and and of course, keeping up with the Supreme Court cases, and I try to listen to them now that they are being, they're being aired um, in public. It's very, I think, exciting. I can't listen to all of them. Yeah, it's such a good resource. It's and it's just, it's cool to hear them in real time because. Right. For those of you who right. don't know, so you it, usually was, have to wait a few days. kind of fun. I, I didn't answer your out. question, but um, I'm going to try to see if I can figure that out <laughs> and tell you, tell you my answer offline. Well, and perhaps perhaps SCOTUS doesn't even know why they're taking out more cases. Maybe subconsciously mm -hmm. they understand it's becoming more and more necessary to right. issue And I'm happy that they're doing area, that as opposed to taking on... You know the cases that we don't that we're that we fear them, um, you know, uh, working on like the abortion cases or the you know any kind of case that would be so controversial mm -hmm. given the um, the way the court is now comprised. Well, and it's also interesting because Roberts is known for being a cautious. <laughs> Uh, chief judge, maybe he right. feels like right. taking on intellectual property cases is very low stakes. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Well, I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. Oh, to speak it's my with pleasure. Us, thank you so much for having me. The world. Um, I really appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Blip Pod. To stay in touch, please visit our website, blipclinic.org, or follow us on Twitter at blipclinic.